We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John, verse by verse. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 29. And we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, We've spent the last four weeks, if you've been here, you might remember exploring the prologue of John or the introduction that he's written. And this morning we are moving on from the prologue into the narrative, which will be the focus of our study uh, for months to come. Uh, But if you were here last week, we were still in the prologue and we unpacked some verses including these, where John says, uh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. And this morning, as John the writer transitions from his prologue into his actual narrative account, he starts off with this witness, John the Baptist, who has come to testify about the light of the world coming into the world. And uh, you have to realize in context that John the Baptist was a really big deal. Uh, All four of the gospel accounts mention him as the uh, precursor to Jesus. The eyes of the nation are on him. And if you glance down at verses 19 through 28, the lead up to today's verses, the narrative actually starts with the religious leaders coming from Jerusalem to interview John the Baptist. And they're trying to figure out who is this guy who's making such big waves in our nation and what is he up to? We're actually going to look at those verses next week, but the short version is that through the course of that interview, he makes it clear, hey, I am not the Messiah. Uh, I'm not the light of the world. I've just come as a witness uh, to prepare the way for him. I'm paving the way for the Messiah, and he replies in the words of Isaiah the prophet. He says, I'm just the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Uh, I'm calling the nation to repent and prepare the way for the one who is to come. I'm not the light of the world myself, but I'm preparing the way for the light of the world. I've come to witness about him, to testify to this light. Uh, But here, starting in verse 29, we actually get the nature of his testimony. And John says he is testifying to the light, uh, but he doesn't use the language of light and darkness. Instead, he's going to use a different set of images and and different language as he testifies. We'll pick up in verse, this is chapter 1, verse 29. It says, the next day, this is after being interviewed, Uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel." Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. 
the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for saving us out of the darkness and into the light, for opening our eyes to who you are. And I was just struck as we were worshiping this morning, Lord, just with the idea of family, that you've made us to be a family, that in a broad sense, your global church is a family, but you've actually designed uh, the local expression of each church to uh, be a family and to experience one another on a deeper level than is possible outside of the church, and to actually experience you collectively. Uh, That we're supposed to have these um, joint experiences with you that simultaneously draw us deeper into you and and knit us uh, closer and closer together with one another. And so I pray that this morning would be another opportunity for us to do that, that we would really see ourselves as family gathering together, uh, celebrating uh, Advent with one another. But as we uh, see you in a fresh light, as we uh, encounter you week in and week out, I I think that's designed to not just draw us closer to you as an individual, but for us to have an experience together that deepens our sense of family week in and week out. So would you come and meet with us, Lord? Would we have a uh, sort of shared experience, a shared experience Uh, revelation of who you are and what you're like and what you're up to and the way that you love us. Uh, And I pray that it would just mark us collectively as a family. There's so much uh, dysfunction in the world and there's a lot of dysfunction in our families, Lord. Even if we think of our own families, whether they've been redeemed in the kingdom or not, uh, there's just just a lot of dysfunction. Would you uh, make us into a people who overcome that, Lord? in the power of your spirit, who actually uh, create a picture or an image of what a functional, healthy, life-giving family is supposed to look like as we journey with you and one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jewish court, in order for something to be accepted as true, it had to be testified to by two different witnesses. And John the writer, a Jewish man himself, uh, writing from that context, is very aware of that fact and uh, structures his gospel account accordingly. He includes two witnesses, and the two witnesses each speak twice, directly witnessing to who Jesus is and what he's about. Uh, As the author of the account, John, the son of Zebedee, uh, affirms that Jesus is the pre-existent Logos, uh, the Word of God, the light of the world come into the world. Uh, And he witnesses to the fact that God became flesh and actually dwelt with him and and the other disciples. And he says, no, we've, we've seen him. I can witness to this. We've seen his glory We've seen the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I am an eyewitness to these things. Uh, Nothing short of the light of the world coming into the world. And as he's saying, I am a witness to these things, he uh, essentially then says, I'm not only am I a witness, but as my next witness, 
I would like to call John the Baptist. He also testifies to these facts that the light of the world came into the world. But as we shift out of the prologue and into the actual narrative account, uh, the words used to describe the pre-existence logos, the word of God, the light of the world, uh, actually shifts. In the verses that we read this morning, it says, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, this is John witnessing to the light of the world, but not using the language of light and darkness. In fact, in this opening section of narrative, which we'll unpack in the weeks ahead, we have no less than seven different titles given for Jesus, and only one of them has already appeared in the prologue. As we encounter the light of the world in flesh and blood, he actually takes on new titles. We see a new aspect of who he is. We get fresh insight, and he's revealed as these things. First and foremost, John says he is the Lamb of God. Uh, he is Israel's rabbi and teacher. He comes as a teacher to teach people. Uh, he is the Messiah, the human Messiah that they've been waiting for. He becomes Jesus of Nazareth, a flesh and blood person with a real name uh, like ours. He's the son of God, which we saw already in the prologue. He's the king of Israel and the son of man. So in the prologue, in the opening verses, we got this uh, stunning picture of the eternal logos as the light of the world stepping into flesh and blood. But by incarnating, to use that language, by incarnating, by becoming flesh and blood on that first Christmas morning, then he actually takes on all of these other things. He becomes all of these things and more. He's always been the son of God, but now he's Israel's teacher and rabbi in person. They can see him, touch him, hear his voice. He's the divine son of man. He is the great prophet, uh, the long-awaited Messiah. He becomes Jesus of Nazareth as a real human being. But notice that the very first thing that John the Baptist witnesses to is that he is, quote, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the beating heart of who he is, of what he's come to do. Uh, and notice that as people heard this, if you were there when he, when he first mentions this idea, they were probably still thinking in terms of a militant Messiah who was coming to bring political freedom from the dark oppressor who was Rome, and to set up a, a physical kingdom of God on earth through the liberated nation state of Israel. That's what they want. That's what they're anticipating. That is what they desire. So even when John says, he's come to take away the sin of the world, they probably would have thought, praise the Lord. He's come to do away with the Romans. Because Rome is sin. The pagans are sin. Our oppressors and our enemies are sin. 
He's come as the Lion of Judah to break the back of the oppressor, to, to shove them out of the land, and to give us the freedom that we so desire, to rid us of this paganism and sinful idolatry. He's come as the divine Son of Man, riding on the clouds to bring God's judgment to the earth. You have to realize that Jesus could be uh, their rabbi, messiah, king, divine prophet, son of God, and still come in military might. In fact, that, that's what they were anticipating and hoping for. That is their expectation of the messiah. But from the very beginning, the very first thing John says is that he's actually the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sin of the world, but not in the way that you think. He's come to judge and overcome evil, but not using the means that you would desire. Light is coming in to judge and conquer darkness, but not in the way that you would anticipate. He's going to conquer darkness by letting it overtake him. He's going to conquer evil by absorbing that evil into his own flesh. He's going to take away the sin of the world by bearing it in his body and then letting it be crucified in his own flesh. He's going to conquer death, but in order to do that, he needs to die. The Holy One will become sin. The scriptures say, taking it into his flesh and having it crucified there. And we've actually been powerfully prepared for this reality by much of what we read in the Old Testament. Uh, there were several sacrificial lambs in the Old Testament that were pointing forward to the ultimate lamb. Uh, one of them uh, was a lamb that was sacrificed to atone for the sin of the people, uh, to die symbolically in their place for their sin. And by the shedding of blood, the people were then uh, forgiven, uh, cleansed of their sin. Uh, there was another lamb that was the, uh, the scapegoat on which all of the sins of the people would be laid and then it was released and supposedly it carried the sins of the people out of the city outside of the gates, out into the wilderness, bearing sin as it went. But perhaps the most uh, famous lambs were those of the Exodus in Egypt, where the Israelites were uh, laboring under slavery and oppression. And in order to be free, they had to kill a lamb and put its blood on their doorposts on the outside for God to see, trusting that the blood of the lamb would save them from judgment and release them from slavery at the same time. 
these are the lambs uh, that would have populated their imaginations. These are the lambs of God, or at least the lambs for God, that had been part of their culture uh, and imagination for uh, centuries leading up to this point. So when John the Baptist says, uh, here he is, the one I've been preparing you for, and the grand reveal comes and he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There should have been a, a revelation in that moment as to who Jesus was, as to what he had come to do, and as to how he had come to do it. But it's not what they were anticipating. You have to imagine, um, if you can, being at a live theater where there's you know, play acting on stage. And uh, there's a spotlight that's beaming down on John the Baptist. And everything else is in darkness. You can't see anything else that's on the stage, but the audience is still and quiet and listening. John the Baptist has the attention of the entire crowd. And he says, hey, I'm preparing you for one who's greater than me. He's gonna blow all of your expectations out of the water. I can't, I'm not even fit to carry his sandals or to wash his feet. Here he is, drum roll please. And, and then imagine the spotlight spinning to the other side of the stage. And all of a sudden what's lit up on the stage is a lamb. You think, well, that's odd. Surely that's not what the lead-up was for. Like the, a, a lamb? John, are you sure? Like, we could really use a lion right now. <laughs> Can we trade? And, and we actually get the same type of shock in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah says throughout the opening chapters that unfold, he says God is coming, will come in person. He will judge the darkness that exists in the nations and he will make for himself a new people uh, and he will set up a new victorious king that he will give to his new covenant people. Uh, in fact, Isaiah says, as he builds through the book, uh, God is coming to lead his people on a new exodus to a new and eternal promised land in the form of a new heavens and a new earth. So throughout the first 39 chapters, Isaiah is, is slowly unraveling these things and laying them out before people. And then Isaiah 40 comes, and there's this turning point in the book, and all of a sudden there's this voice crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. In other words, hey, this isn't a someday thing. The voice is saying, it's about to happen right now. Prepare your hearts, because God is going to fulfill these things. In fact, here comes your victorious king. Drum roll, please. And the spotlight swings over and it illuminates a suffering servant. And if you've been tracking with Isaiah through all of those chapters, you're thinking, what, what is this? That's our victorious king. That's the one that you've been leading up to. This is God come among us. Like a suffering servant, that, that's actually not the king that we ordered. There must be some mistake here. That's not, what we, that's not what we need. 
That's not what we asked for. That guy who suffering, despised and rejected, marred beyond human likeness, bearing our sin and shame, that, that's not the victorious king we had pictured in our minds. Can we trade him for another? But what Isaiah is saying is that God is leading his new covenant people on a new exodus from our true slave masters, not political oppressors from foreign countries. Rather, it's, it's freedom from Satan, sin, and death. He has come to conquer Satan and the dark powers of this world. He's come to conquer sin and give his people power over it, freedom from it, past, present, and future. He's come to to conquer death itself, to to lead us out in a new exodus, out from under the, the true slave masters of humanity and out into the desert where we can follow him in freedom, in covenant relationship, until at last we can cross into the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. A place of incomprehensible beauty. That's God's goal. That's what he's after. That's what he's come to accomplish. And he will accomplish it. But if you flip back to the Exodus, if the goal is to lead humanity out from under the dark powers, in covenant relationship with his presence in this life, but ultimately into the new heavens and the new earth. He says, that's what I want to accomplish, a new exodus into a new promised land. We'll flip back to exodus. What's the first thing that needs to happen? The first thing that needs to happen is that a lamb needs to die. That's how the revolution begins. That's the start of our freedom. What happened in the Exodus? He says, you take a lamb, a perfect and spotless lamb, and it dies instead of you, and you take its blood. You know, thousands of years later, God's people were still celebrating the Exodus, the Passover, the time when God's judgment passed over them because of the, the blood of the lamb. And, and they were still celebrating this year after year. Centuries later, they were still celebrating it. And they were still raising and sacrificing perfect spotless lambs, remembering their past exodus and praying to God for a new one. You know where the Passover lambs were raised? In Bethlehem. In the fields outside of Bethlehem. And so it was believed that the uh, shepherds who came to the birth of Jesus were not ordinary shepherds. They were actually a special type of shepherd that would oversee the Passover flocks. And when a new lamb was born in the flock, these special shepherds would come and they would certify. They would examine the lamb. They would say yes or no. Yes, this is a perfect spotless lamb 
worthy of Passover sacrifice. The Magi are on their way to come and affirm that he is, in fact, a king, worthy of glory and honor. But the first on the scene are the shepherds, the Passover shepherds. And they aren't there to certify that he's a king, though he is. They've come to certify that he's a perfect and spotless Passover lamb. The one who will die for the sins of the people. The one who has come to take away the sins of the world. The one who will lay down his life to start a new exodus to a new promised land. In this moment, through these events, eternity is coming into view. It is drawing close. It is becoming accessible. But first, the lamb has to die. We'll end with this. This is Isaiah 53. Uh, and I'd actually invite you, if you want to, as we close, to just close your eyes as we finish up here. The worship team can come back up. And I want you to picture this in your mind, if you can. This is what Isaiah says about our victorious king. Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off 
from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being born in flesh and blood. For we know that it's only in flesh and blood that we could truly see you and know you and, and fall in love with you in the way that we have. And it was only in flesh and blood that you could bear our sin within you. That you could take the evil of the world into your flesh. So Lord, as we, um, as we go about this week, as we go about this lifetime, as um, frail human beings, who are so um, quick to be distracted, Lord, who are so quick um, to lose sight of you. Lord, I, I pray that as in, in, in our distraction, that we would look to the one that John says is the Lamb of God, that you would draw us back into who you are, draw us into your heart as the Lamb. Lord, I pray over those in the room this morning who uh, are, are tempted to go back to Egypt, as the Israelites were, who are tempted to go back and submit to our old slave masters because of the benefits that they provided. And Lord, for those who are tempted to go back to Egypt or feel like some part of them is still stuck in Egypt, Lord, I pray that, that we would look to the Lamb we would look to the lamb who was slain, that we would trust in you as the lamb of God. We would trust in your blood. Lord, for those of us in the room who are wrestling this morning with the accusation of the enemy, who we, who we read in Revelation never stops accusing the people of God day and night, God, I, I pray those that those of us who um, have let the lies of the enemy and the accusation of the enemy just sort of stick and begin to seep down into us and mold us and shape us, uh, 
God, I pray that we would look to the Lamb this morning. That we would remember that you didn't come for nothing, that you didn't die for nothing. And that if you came for the reason that you say you came, and you died for the reason that you say you died, then the enemy has nothing left to say to us. That we are free, we are home, we are dry. We don't have to listen to anything else that he would try to say. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are in a season where we are all too aware of the pain and injustice of the world, who ache over the brokenness of this world and all the things that are not yet right within it. Lord, it's so natural for us in those moments to cry out for a lion who will come and fix things the way that we want them to be fixed. Yet, Lord, for those of us who are in the room this morning who are just in a place of suffering, I pray again that we would look to the Lamb, to the one who's overcome, to the one who is slowly conquering all the evil, all the dark powers, all sin, all death is being made a footstool under his feet. And that because you could, God, if you would come as the lion, you would have fixed things one time for one people group. But because you've come as the lamb, taking on the sin of the world, you promise to one day fix all things for all people groups, for all time, for all eternity. So Lord, whether we're feeling tempted to return to slavery or we're wrestling with the accusation of the enemy or we're just weeping over the brokenness and injustice and the things that just aren't right in the world, Lord, I pray that as a family this morning we would look to the Lamb, to the Lamb who was slain. We'll end with this then we'll worship together. In the book of Revelation, uh, we get another spotlight moment where things are not as they should be. They're not as we would anticipate. And John, I believe the same John who wrote this gospel account we're studying, is here in this powerful vision. He's actually weeping at the things that can't be changed, at the things that can't be opened up. And and then it says this, And one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He is triumphant over human history, over sin, over death, over eternity. He's enthroned. And then the spotlight moves, and what he hears is, Behold the lion. And this is what he sees. And I looked and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. It says, this is your king. This is the one who's overcome and this is how he's done it. Let's worship together. Oh, come, Emmanuel.